Hi, I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to actor, writer, and director Ethan Hawke. If you say, I want to win a Tony, the second will happen when you do is you'll say, I want to win two. If you say, I love acting, I want to contribute. It might be Horatio at the Arizona Rep. It might be teaching. It might be doing lights. It might be casting. But if you say, I want to be part of the solution, I believe in the value of art and use me life, good things will happen. Ethan Hawke has brought his talents as an actor to countless independent and studio films like Boyhood, Training Day, Gattaca, Dead Poet Society, The Magnificent Seven, and my personal favorite is the Before series. He's also been putting the directing hat on recently. Josh played the role of Z in one of Ethan's recent films, Blaze, one of many collaborations between the two. But Josh and Ethan's friendship goes far back to Malapart, a theater company that they started in the early 90s. Who all was involved in Malapart? Well, Ethan was the real engine, but it was a group of people that we were hanging out with already and, you know, young people in New York who just wanted to be working and people like Robert Sean Leonard and Frank Whaley and uh, Cynthia Nixon, Amelia Campbell, uh, Steve Zahn, Calista Flockhart. We all were hanging out anyway and we thought, why not do what we love while we're hanging out? Cool. Well, we're lucky to have both Josh and Ethan here today in conversation about these auspicious beginnings. Thanks so much for coming in. I'll take a back seat and let Josh lead the way, but could you guys talk a little bit more about Malapart and, you know, what that company meant to you? I read that there was a cross-country drive that might have been at the genesis of the company. The truth is that the origin story of Josh and I's friendship is the start of Malapart, and it's near the start of both of our professional lives. And through all of our friendships, we started a theater company. We, we drove cross-country, the three of us. Yeah, that was the start of it. And I don't exactly know what possessed us to drive cross-country, except the three of us have been doing a lot of hanging out, and we had all read too much Kerouac. And Yeah. Well, Malapart, funnily enough, is in a Ka Kerouac interview. Kerouac had done this interview, and he t talked about a novel I've never seen, but it was called Malapart, and it was published not by... People think we meant Curzio Malapart, the, the writer. But this was a novel titled Malapart in which it was published unbound and every copy came in a different order. And the idea was that life is not about what happens. We all know what is going to happen. We are all born and we are all going to die. That is what is going to happen. And so there's no, this idea that there's a myth around a narrative, that there's a beginning, middle, and end, and that things happen in a sequential order, that we actually experience life. But the, the, the idea of the novel was it's always about how something happens, not what happens. How do we interact with each other? That is how we are changed, not whether or not you get the carrot at the end of the stick or whether the gold ring is grabbed or whether the tragedy is averted or not. Any negative can be a positive. Any positive can be a negative. And so the fun of this novel is whatever order it came in. And this we were super into as young men about being experience-oriented, not being uh, accomplishment-oriented or goal-oriented necessarily as, as much as experience-oriented. And that if we could make art that wasn't about what happened or but it was about how it happened. I don't know whether the idea of the theater company came before the drive or after the drive or during it. It was during, yeah. yeah. I think we all just got excited about the idea of doing something ourselves and not waiting around to be hired by other people. And, which and is the life of an actor, which is extremely difficult. Um, and it was probably the best thing we could have done. And we got to a place where we could talk to each other about acting. We wanted to do new plays by playwrights of our generation. We wanted to try to carve a, you know, it's it's a very difficult, to, at that time period, even guys like Sam Shepard and John Patrick Shanley and really known people are being done off Broadway. So where's where are playwrights supposed to be done? They need, I mean, this is still true. They need, a playwright can't be born if their plays aren't produced. And that leads into actually a question I jotted down. Um, I know you just uh, did the audiobook for Dharma Bums a few right, weeks ago. Right, right. And uh, it got me thinking about, you know, we were so, like, you know, millions of impressionable young people. We were so caught up and, you know, inspired by the, <clears throat> the beat movement. And um, I was curious, reading it as a, as a, you know, someone heading into middle, middle age. Yeah. What, I finally was, arrived there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious how, if you relate to it differently, uh, you know, now when we were younger. I was completely 
shocked. I thought I was going to roll my eyes a lot. Yeah. I thought I was going to find it a little corny or a little... There is something hypnotic about his voice um, and what he's driving at. And what he's driving at is a love of life. And it's shocking because the beat movement, when you say it, you picture hipsters and coffee and cigarettes and people trying to be cool. It's actually the opposite of what the novels are doing. The novels are so sincere. Yeah. It, I mean, it's it, he's got a ton of hang-ups. Yeah, he's an alcoholic. Yeah, he's got sexual hang-ups. Yeah, he's really clear about them all. And he really wants to love life. And he understands that the pursuit of the accumulation of wealth is a fraudulent goal that the country's obsessed by. He understands the issues of race. This country's just lost in it. it, it it's lost in his... This country's not seeing the human being as a human being. So his love of jazz music, his love of Native Americans, his love of, like, and he sees, because he's French-Canadian, it's very, this, I realize, too, he writes about America in a really interesting way because you become aware of the continent. He loves Canada. He loves Mexico. He loves driving from Canada to Mexico and, and feeling the history of it and feeling how lost we are as a, what a haze of consumerism we're in. And he's talking about it in the 50s. He has no idea how bad it's going to get. Yeah. And so when I thought I was going to be reading this Rolling My Eyes, what I ended up taking away is almost wanting to um, take a syringe into the book and withdraw it and shoot it back into my bloodstream of of, of just simple joy of being alive. You know, he's at his best. You know, he, half the damn book is him going on a hike with Gary Snyder. I mean, literally, it's it's it would be kicked out of any decent novel school in America, and yet you can't stop reading it. It's just, they just go on a hike, and he sees these rocks, and he sees those rocks, and he, and he starts to realize how superficial his life is. You know, that these rocks have been here for eternities, and, and, Gary, and Gary Snyder, so... And you can't help, as a guy staring at 50 to realize he's writing about Gary Snyder. Kerouac's been dead 50 years, and Gary Snyder's still writing. Yeah. You know, I mean, Gary Snyder won the Pulitzer in 1975, six years after Kerouac was dead. He's still winning awards. He's still, it's something you know that, one of the things I've always admired about you, Josh, happened the first time we met, because, you, and you even brought it up, the fact, we all knew, when you're in a community of young actors, there's only so many jobs. I see this. I've got a 21-year-old daughter. You know, she has lots of friends. They all audition for the same parts, right. right? I mean, it's just what happens. There's a handful of people that are really serious about it. And some people get jettisoned to fame, and some people don't. Some people have this thing happen to them, and some get on a TV show, and some win a Tony, and some never get a job. It's, it's all happening to your gen- But you all see each other, and you know each other. We're all... We're all part of something much bigger than one individual. We're all actually trying to, like, be a part of our generation's art. And so it, there was something right from the start. Yeah. That uh, just reminded me of something. I remember a few years ago we were talking about taking artistic risks and the kind of work we wanted to do. And I mentioned that I've always been a little hobbled by, like, you know, a fear of failure and sort of kept me from, like, maybe trying things that I, you know, and uh, the old adage, I, I brought up the old adage, if you, if you don't really try, then you can't really fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I remember yeah, you looked yeah. sort of, you, were, you looked kind of curious and you, you, you went, wait, wait, say it again? And I said, well, you know, if you can't, if you don't really try, then you can't really fail. And you're like, wow, I've never heard that before. What an interesting thought. And I realized it was such an illuminating moment for me because I realized that it, that just, that, that concept had never even entered your mind. And it, it made me realize how you've lived your life in not being, just trying anything you're interested in, exploring pretty much every art form I can imagine. Uh, I mean, you have this sort of relentless, uh, almost pathological drive to create and and turn your life and your experience and your thoughts into various forms of art. And it's not like you don't care what people think, you know, you're human, I do, yeah. but that's never kept, you know, some snarky comment by like a village voice, is, that does not rule your life. Yeah. I remember that moment too, because I think there is something that happens at middle age and you start, you see this huge road behind you and you kind of, you can intuit what the rest of the road is going to be more easily than you could at 20. You kind of see... Oh, so this is life. Like, you know, when, when you're 20, you kind of, it all seems so wild and unknowable. Yeah. And now I'm kind of, I, I know what I want to do with the rest of my days, however many I have, which is what I'm doing. I mean, I, I love what I'm doing. And, but we all have blind spots, and some of our blind spots are helpful. 
And one of mine was this feeling that there was a pervasive goodwill to the universe. And I really thought negativity has always surprised me. My favorite line in a movie is, I love that moment in um, One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest when he, he, he bets all the guys that he can lift the sink and throw it through the window, and they all bet him that he can't. And you remember Nicholson's just pulling, his veins are popping, and he finally gives up. And he looks at him and says, at least I tried. Yeah. You know, and I remember that moment as a kid and going, yes! God, this is a strange gene. I don't. I only think of it afterwards, like, because my wife will tell you, like, I care way too much what other people. I've I've shed tears over what other people think. It, but I don't think of it until it's too late. Like I took that Dead Poets Society money. If you remember, after that road trip, as a kind of dare to us, I just rented the theater. We didn't even have a play yet. That's right. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't know what we were gonna do. And I said, I took the money. I put the down payment on. Um, the Sanford Meisner Theater there on 11th Avenue. Yeah. And we wanted Sherm to have a play. He didn't have one ready. He didn't have yeah. one ready. So, but what he did do is he read a ton of other young people's right. And, and Keith Bunin did this Pirandello adaptation. And we put this play on. Cynthia Nixon was in it. Austin Pendleton. Austin Pendleton. It was, yeah. And it was so fun. But I didn't think, how are we going to get people to come? Maybe it won't work. Maybe I just thought, all right, we're going to do it. No, and, we like and, gave out tickets on the sidewalk. Yeah, we yeah. totally gave out tickets on the sidewalk. And we went up to TKTS and gave out tickets. Don't pay money. Yeah. You can see our play for free. <laughs> and I've kind of continually done that. You know, I, I was halfway through making a documentary before I realized this is a terrible idea to make it. This is a lot of money. I'm going to lose money doing this. But my brain doesn't. Yeah, my brain gets excited, and um, and it's it's ultimately a thing that served me really well. And I, as a parent, I often figure like, God, how can you? I do think fear is such an obstacle. It, it it's because it, the, there's not actually much to be afraid of. You, you know, there 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 really isn't. There's real things in the world, violence and 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 political manifestations of of our actions that are real. But that's not usually what's what scares us is. Are, for some strange reason, our brethren, our brothers and sisters, thinking less of us. Like we're, and nobody ever really disrespects you for trying anything. Now you brought up your documentary, um, which I just have to. Uh, I want to talk about it anyway because it's it's has to be one of my favorite things that you've ever uh, done, and it's it's called Seymour and Introduction. Uh, you can talk about what it's about, but my question really is sort of in talking about fame and success and, and different concepts of that and what it means to, to us at different points in our life. I mean, do you think you would have realized that he was a worthy subject of a documentary when we were 25 or, or 20 or? No, yeah, I don't. I think uh, it's about Seymour Bernstein, who is, who is a brilliant pianist. He, when we made the documentary, I think he was 88 and he's gonna outlive all of us. But what's beautiful about him is he says some revelatory things to an American, which is that he doesn't think the idea of a quote-unquote successful career in the arts is a good thing, um, that it often handicaps people's learning. And it often, I'll give you an example. Uh, I equate it to this. It, um, it sounds like I'm going off topic for a second, but I'm not. There's a college baseball coach that is like a spiritual brother to Seymour. It's a baseball coach, and he's won five different NCAA championships with different schools. Everywhere he goes, they win. And the Yankees always try to get him, and the Red Sox always try to get him. And somebody asked him, why don't you coach, why don't you take these jobs? And he says, because if you coach for the Yankees, your job is to win. And what I prefer is using baseball as an opportunity to teach young men how to be better people. And inadvertently, if you're your best self, you usually win. But that can't be your goal. And that's the most obvious example of what Seymour is saying, that if your goal is to be successful at the arts, you've actually already taken your eye off the ball. Hmm. That we don't get to choose who's Bob Dylan and who's Emily Dickinson, who's Denzel Washington, who's Daniel Day-Lewis. But we can, as a community, decide that what they do has value, and the community creates them, right? We, I mean, the genius of Scorsese's documentary about Dylan— yeah is that it fundamentally isn't about Bob Dylan. Mm. It's fundamentally about the time period needed Bob Dylan, and this individual made himself ready. 
you, you know, through mm-hmm. his work ethic and through his particular brain, genius. But it was the culture made Bob Dylan. Because mm-hmm. if the culture doesn't care, these poets live in a vacuum, right? And so Seymour was saying to me, I had this, it, how it happened is absolutely amazing. And I had a friend of mine who was dying who got, uh, you know, very serious cancer. And one of the things he wanted to do before he died, um, I say, friend, you're looking at me because we know each other. It's actually my shrink, okay? And it it, it was a shrink of mine for years who I just loved. And I loved him with a passion. He was a great friend to me. And he was dying. And what he wanted to do, he really regretted it, is that he gave up playing the piano when he was younger. And he didn't worry about money anymore because he only had six months to live. So he got the best piano teacher in the world to teach him. And he wanted to give a recital before he died, right? Before he got too sick to play. And he did it. And I came to this recital. And man, I just can't tell you how beautiful it was to watch this old man play the way that he wanted to play these really tough pieces. And there I was seated next to his teacher, Seymour Bernstein. And we had dinner afterwards. And it's like... For lack of a better word, he has the eyes of a saint. You know, he has these eyes Mm -hmm. that tell you it's okay. And at that exact moment, I was really hurting. I I was 40 and experiencing, I've been professionally acting since I was 13. And I was getting worse and worse stage fright. And I was getting hung up about, I was really worried about money. You know, my wife was pregnant with my fourth kid and I... And the economy was crashing. And I, when Dead Poets Society came out, I was like, the, I was the richest person I knew. I was the richest person I'd met, you know? And, and, and now all of a sudden, I didn't have, I was worried about paying my alimony. And I, I was really stressed. And it was really hurting my love of what I was doing. And it was screwing me up. And I ended up vomiting all this at this old man at this table. And he said all these really interesting things. And he asked me questions. And I came home and I Googled him. You know, who was this weird leprechaun sitting next to me? It was what it felt like. And I read some articles about him. He fought in the Korean War. And I read that he'd had this, you know, he was a world-class pianist. And he'd given up at the height of his career and decided to teach. I said, I got to talk to this guy. What's going on with him? So we started an email exchange. And then I tried to talk Link. I called Richard Linklater. I said, you should do a documentary on him. This guy's amazing. And I started talking to him. And, and then I called Alexander Shivo, who's another friend of ours who's a documentary. I said, you got to do a documentary on him. And Ryan, my wife, when I hung up the phone with Alexander, she said, why don't you do it? Like, what is going on? And I thought, I don't, I don't know. And I, I went and had... I brought, he invited Maya and I to hear him play. And he, does, he doesn't do any public recitals, but you could go to his house and he'll play for you. In this tiny a room about the size of this studio that he's lived in for more than 50 years. I mean, it's literally, the apartment is about the size of a grand piano, right? And it was the holy elixir of heaven. You, Maya and I felt transported through centuries This music is so powerful. It's like looking at the stars. It's like looking at the ocean late at night with a best friend. You just all of a sudden are hit with, oh, right, everything I'm worried about doesn't matter. Oh, right, I'm on a star in space, and I have no idea why I'm born. I mean, you just, it just goes to the deep end of the pool really fast. And I was like, I got to get a camera in here, and um, I got to ask him to play like this, and I got to film, and I got to get a good sound guy. And his, the documentary happened so easily because the guy is very and he says he says some radical things that people don't want to hear like I wish Glenn Gould wasn't famous he would have been a better piano player if he hadn't sold so many records and if he hadn't prioritized selling records he would have been even better and I think you know he says some very beautiful things about whether we're talking about Jackson Pollock or Marlon Brando the difficulty of finding moments of grace in your art and how that feels when you don't have grace in real life. And that real life, friends, wives, girlfriends, getting to work on time, answering emails, it's very stressful slash boring, disappointing. Regular life is really hard. And when you start to have these moments of grace, of genius, of profundity, Real life feels even worse. I often think about this. You know, funnily enough, you know, Phil Seymour Hoffman was supposed to be at the the concert that I filmed. I talked Seymour into playing, and Phil was supposed to be there. And that was in the period when Mm -hmm. when Phil started, like, not answering texts Mm -hmm. at weird times. Mm -hmm. And, like, 
I mean, he was supposed to be there. Yeah. Stephen Gerges is sitting right there. There's a chair for Phil and the dog, yeah. and he's not there. Yeah. And man, he needed to hear this guy. Yeah. Because what he's talking about is creating balance in our inner life. In that, I remember once Phil saying to me, he said, you'd be surprised. You know, the most difficult thing that ever happened to me in my life as an actor was winning the Oscar. Because my whole self-esteem was rooted in being a good character actor. All I cared about was acting in the lab. And, and now all of a sudden I started, this trailer's not good enough for an Academy Award winner. Yeah. An Academy Award winner doesn't get stuck on the subway. <laughs> an Academy Award winner doesn't have an upset stomach. <laughs> Do, you know what I mean? He's really yeah. funny about it, you know? And Because you start to see yourself in third person, right? Yeah. And Seymour's talking, that's the enemy. The enemy, there is nothing about, if this is what I keep saying to Maya, there's nothing about acting that is beautiful and good that you need anyone else for. You can you can do it. You like that's the spirit of Malapart is if you say I love acting, I want to contribute, right? You're going to be able to. It, you it might be Horatio at the Arizona Rep, it might be teaching, it might be doing lights, it might be casting, it might be but if you say I want to be part of the solution, I believe in the value of art and use me life. Yeah, right? Yeah. Good things will happen. If you say I want to win a Tony. Mm -hmm. The second will happen when you do is you'll say, I want to win two. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and, and it's been seven years since I won the Tony. You know, I mean, people, the itch doesn't get scratched. Superficial itches don't get scratched. And yes, what, you have something you want to say. No, no, no. I just wanted to, to go back, uh, you know, going back to origins. And, and I'm curious if you, because you know, there's an old saying that, you know, one of the worst things that could happen to a, uh, a young artist is success. Yeah, right. And I wanted to go back to... The other worst thing is failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sucks too. Um, but uh, you, you mentioned that you started working when you were 13. Right. And, and you uh, were in a, a major motion picture at 13 yeah. that I imagine you probably thought was like going to change the course of your life for the rest yeah, of the totally. and, and, and w talk about a little bit about what, what, how that affected then how you thought about fame and success after that. Th that's, I think the essential thing for my life about being able to find balance and prioritizing things had to do with the failure of explorers. Like, um, I got, ca they had a nationwide call, you know, it was Back in the days, this kind of every night, you would hear these stories. Remember, E.T. had just come out, you know, and, and Henry Thomas, they did a nationwide search and found Henry Thomas. And in my eye, Henry Thomas was, you know, next to St. Francis, you know. I mean, he was a very important person, you know, and he was amazing, and I loved him. And, you know, this guy who had directed Gremlins, you know, a big hit movie. It was his next film. You know, it was a $30 million movie in 1984, which is basically like, you know, it's a $100 million movie, right? Mm. And it was a big deal. They cast everywhere. I came in to audition for this thing, you know, 17 times, got the part. And getting the part, it felt like being knighted or something. It felt like such, I had to leave school. They sent, you know, um, you, you know, they, they, they had doctor's appointments. You know, you know Josh and I were <laughs> a little bit important. raised by wolves and like, you know, I hadn't been to the dentist. You know, like, you know, they like had to, clean, you know, clean my teeth. I felt like, wow, this is, this is a big time. You know, I'm going to be somebody. And we, they flew us to L.A. And I mean, it, I, you know, just not being in school felt yeah. like well, I've, you're now I, different from the rest of your generation, right? You're, you're, you're being taken off the conveyor belt because yeah. God likes you best, yeah. right? Special. I'm special. And all my friends at school thought I was special. I was very important. And I went there and I had this amazing experience and it was really incredible. And I learned all this stuff and I came back to school and a lot of the kids... It didn't like me because I had a big head. And I didn't think I had a big head. I thought they thought I had a big head because I'd been gone. But maybe I did have a big head. I don't know. You, you know, I mean, whatever it is, they thought I had a big head. Maybe I did. Yeah. Girls are kind of into you because you're in a movie, so then all the boys hate you because, right. the you know, the cute girl thinks you're, like, whatever. So it's very stressed. Then the movie came out, and I remember River Phoenix is in the movie with me. It premiered at the Zigfield. Like, we took the train into New York. I mean, it was epic. The Zigfield was a big deal back then. And, and River... You 14 at, at this point? 14, 14 yeah. yeah. River and I go to the urinal after it's over, and everybody's talking about what a piece of crap it is. <laughs> I, 
in the year they don't recognize us. And I remember looking at them like the the record I was playing in my head came to a screeching halt. Like this is not the way the record plays. Like I'm now going to be a giant star. Well, didn't happen. The reviews were terrible. And this is back in the day when like a movie would come out and then it was gone the next weekend. And that was like movies are supposed to play for 10 weeks, 12 weeks, six. It was like, and so now the guys at school were like, you thought you were a big <laughs> shot and you're a loser. <laughs> you, that movie sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I got this weird immediate taste of the fickleness of A, the public, B, how you can work really hard and care immensely with a lot of artisans and a lot of craftspeople who care immensely about what they're doing and have it not work. It just didn't work. People didn't like it. Yeah. And we loved it. And we cared, worked really hard on it. And I would wake up in the middle of the night. You know, I had this reoccurring nightmare for months of them remaking the movie. It was, you know, River and Jason and a new kid. Yeah. Then it would have been amazing. Then it would have been amazing. (laughs) And that's what I, and you know, and funnily enough, the next thing River did was stand by me. And so by the time six months, River really was on the cover of People Magazine. He really was an international icon. People at school started asking me for my autograph because I knew River Phoenix. Like, and, and this was really hard. You know, my ego just, and I never wanted to act again. Mm. You know, I, I, I joined the football team. I got rid of that. I didn't go on any calls. And slowly my self-esteem put itself back together. And but I, I, I got really interested in writing in high school. And but it was hindsight 2020. It was the best medicine the universe could have given me. Cause when it I didn't realize Dead Poet Society was really a success until like two years after it. I mean, I literally when people told me that that movie was going to be good and stuff, I was whispering to everybody, that doesn't mean anything, you guys. Right. It, just whatever they say. Don't believe them. This, it, it's not going to change your life, right? It's not. Like, remember, I mean, I, I went to NYU the next year as an um, English major. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't taking acting. I didn't think that's the way my life was going to go. I thought that was a nice way to drop out of college. And, and you're just not in control. As an actor, you're not in control of whether the zeitgeist chooses the work you did. You know, um, there's a scenario that you did that movie School Ties, right? Uh, Not School Ties, uh, the one with, with Honors. With yeah, Honors. Yeah. Um, uh, school Ties, another one I auditioned for. And yeah, 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 and, um, and, and with Honors, in another universe, Joe Pesci wins the Oscar for that movie. It totally changes your career. This, that, and the other thing happens. Through no actions of your own. That's what's mysterious about our profession is that I did a good job in Dead Poets Society, but it was really a collective Peter, Peter Weir, Tom Schulman, Robin Williams. The studio put money behind it. There were lots of advertising. The, uh, Robin was at a particular moment in his fame that it had been a long time since Goodbye, Mr. Chips. People weren't, there's a lot of ingredients mm-hmm. that parlay into a movie being successful or a failure that have nothing to do with whether you're talented or not. But the way my life worked, that one went well. But thank God for the failure of Explorers because I didn't, I was trying to teach myself to have a protective shield around me that was not affected. I didn't want to get hurt like I got hurt on the Explorers. So I didn't care whether it was successful or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love doing it. So if you just said, I don't care, well then, you don't have to worry if it fails, you still, you won't have to feel bad. I remember uh, you once told me that when your mom was ch- choosing your name, uh, she, she yeah. thought she thought that Ethan Hawke would look good on on the cover of a a, a book jacket. Uh, a book jacket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Some, to, sometimes my father thinks she married him because, because his name was Hawke. Hawk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you? I mean, at what point do you, do you think if you had started working nonstop after Explorers, that do you, do you think that you would have started? exploring writing and and no. the other things too mm-hmm. no i think uh well i i think success at, at, in child acting i you and i both had experience as kids and i think that made us stronger but fame mm. as a kid you know i mean i think you know talk to henry thomas talk to macaulay culkin talk to you know um you can't talk to river you know um 
Talk to Martha Plimpton about it. Um, talk to Corey Feldman. You know, it's very, very hard to survive. Um, and I don't think, a la Seymour, what Seymour had to teach, what you really want is to find your own voice. And fame, success stops. Once, if I say, oh, I love it when you do that, here's a million dollars, do that again, mm -hmm. you're going to start doing only that. Right. And I think there's a beautiful thing in acting in other countries, particularly London, part of why, like if you look at the history of the Oscars or the Tonys and stuff, there's a total disproportionate amount of, we have a big country with millions and millions of people, and we give about half our acting accolades to British people. Mm -hmm. And I think this tiny little island, and I, and I think the answer is really obvious, is they have a societal respect for the profession. And they don't treat it like celebrity in the same. Like we don't treat jazz musicians. They're, they're celebrities, but they're respected. And the the art of what they do, of a painter or a writer, is respected. And in London, the craft of acting is not hyperbolized the same way Jack Julia Roberts, Jack Nicholson, you know these these movie stars are. And what happens to young actors, I believe, when they get the first blush of fame, is they get handed a ton of money. They get rewarded a lot, and their growth suffers. It, 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 part of why Jack Nicholson is the genius he is is he was allowed to develop. He didn't. He uh, wasn't he was famous in his late until his thirties. Yeah, right? I mean, you know, he was I think thirty at Easy Rider mm -hmm. at twenty nine or something, mm -hmm. and so he wasn't fully hitting his stride fame wise until he was ready to receive it. Mm -hmm. You know, and. I think uh, Meryl Streep, too. Meryl Streep, you know, was not 21 and famous. She was allowed, you know, mm -hmm. she was young, but she was allowed. She went to Yale. She went to Yale grad school. I mean, she would, did, she had time to find herself. And the way the Brits do it is you play the ingenue. You don't just, you you earn playing Lady Macbeth. What do you think it, it, it was that, I'm, I'm sort of leading towards, um, uh, we got some sad news this week with a friend of ours, uh, yeah. uh, the great actor Richard Easton passed away. And he's someone who I think really symbolizes, uh, you know, work above fame. And and I'm, I'm curious why, because I feel like we both, from a young age, were sort of drawn towards people who, who people who always worked, who really cared about the work, but who weren't, no, no. Um, you know, sort of... And, and, you know, I think back when Richard passed, it's fascinating. Like, every day I keep opening, like, they better have an obituary for him, you know? Yeah. And you realize, like, wow, he's so important to me, and he might not get an obituary in the New York Times. And I'm like, wow. I can't imagine. Yeah, but it's 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 funny because it's we can't imagine because <laughs> he's such a legend yeah. to us. And he's a legend to anyone who worked with him who understands his respect for our craft and how that's not met with a societal adoration or money. I mean, he had lots of success, but I remember this... A great moment I had with him. We did the Bridge Project. Sam Mendes was directing Chekhov and Shakespeare, and we're going to take it all over the world. And he wanted to mix British actors and American actors and kind of do it in, in rep. And it was a really neat thing. And Richard Easton had agreed to be in it. Josh and I were offered parts in it. And I'll be totally candid here. I was worried my parts were a little small. I was worried I wasn't going to enjoy. I wanted a big It was a year-long commitment. It was a yeah. year-long commitment, and I wanted to make sure that they were good parts. And and I called Richard up, and I said, so Italicus, is Italicus a good part? Oh, he waxed poetic about what an amazing role it's. Oh, you would be amazing as Italicus. And, you know, I was talking about the Chekhov play, and he was talking about that. Oh, these are amazing roles. You, this will be great for you. Richard, he, he, here's the, my, what, I guess what I'm saying is I I know you think all Shakespearean roles are great, actually, don't you? He's well, yes. <laughs> like, right. Is, is this a good part for me? He's like, what do you mean? It's a good part for anyone. I'm like, will I be able... But don't be you know who I think I am? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out the words that I meant. You know, I mean, like, can I steal the show? Can I be a star? And he says, oh, if you're asking me how to be a star, I have no idea and I'm less interested in this conversation. If you're asking me how to have a meaningful, substantive life in the arts, my answer is these are phenomenal roles and a good use of your time. And I was like, okay. And you know what? If I could go back, that year was so pivotal in my 
I think in my life, I've tr been trying to make a switch around that time period. For years, I really saw myself as a leading man or what I kind of call a first person actor. Mm. Person like, it's me and I'm going to make the part kind of fit me. Mm. And Phil Hoffman used to always tell me this is your problem is you've always played leads and you don't know what it's like to support an ensemble and the value of what it feels like to support an ensemble and how to do it well. And I always felt like because Phil started with small parts, mm. you know, third cop to the left, he would make third cop from the left really real. And then when he started getting, he put a lot into that little character. Then when he got leads, he put a lot into every line because that was that was his habit. Whereas I would like kind of go like, yeah, these scenes are fine. I got a big scene coming up. I'm going to nail that one. And Phil just didn't think like that. I nail every moment, every time. And in playing those smaller roles, and they were vibrant, great roles, help me learn how to be an ensemble player, help me learn how to get outside the boundaries of myself and start doing more third-person acting, which really, you know, was essential to playing Chet, Chet Baker, or a lot of the parts that I've been playing recently, I've been working on vocally changing myself, you know, using with hair and makeup and costumes, starting to use more of the toolkit of the actor that I feel like when I was younger and I'd watch Daniel Day-Lewis system, I'd admire the hell out of it, but I think I could never do that. Mm -hmm. um, should we go back even further and talk about, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you, you were born in Texas. Yeah. And, and you lived there until how, how, how old? Well, my mother was 18 when I was born. My father was 19. They were students at UT. And so they split up pretty shortly after that. And my mother moved to Connecticut, I think when I was five, and my father stayed in Texas. And so then I would I would go spend the summers with him in Texas. And me have to understand, so when I'm five, my mom is 23. Yeah, me too. Right. Yeah, yeah. You, you know. Yeah. And so I say to people, oh, your mom, you know, my mom was a waitress at Stratton Mountain Valley Lodge, and my mom sold college textbooks in Atlanta, Georgia. And if I tell these things, people, like, they picture this 35-year-old woman who's constantly changing jobs, or she's, because I mean, I went, we went from Texas to Connecticut to Vermont to Atlanta to Brooklyn to New Jersey. We moved this is a recipe for an actor. This is a recipe for yeah. an actor, absolutely. We moved all the time, and people would say, wow, what'd your mom do? Are you in the military or something? No, she was 22 or 23, 20. I remember being, um, I was 13 on my mother's 30th birthday and thinking, wow, she's old, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And now... You know, I'm 49 and have an eight-year-old, so yeah. it's a different. Well, I guess I'm curious if you could unpack what you mean when you say, you know, that's the recipe for an actor. Well, I mean, constantly having to reinvent yourself, make new friends, try to figure out how to get people to like you so that, you know, you're not totally on the outs every time you move. Um, it, I think it shapes you, you know, like when there's a new kid at school, everybody stares at him or her, and they, and so you get kind of comfortable with that feeling, and I think there is something driving most actors to, you're trying to heal something that you feel is lost or broke. Like most sane people, like my father, for example, if he finds out he has to speak at a wedding, I mean, he just dreads it for months. I mean, it's just, it, it, you know, yeah. grace at Christmas dinner is about public speaking enough, right? You know, a lot of people, if they have a conference, most people don't want to stand in front of everybody else. And there is something super, it's like being fired out of a rocket. When you go stand, particularly in the eldest part of our profession, meaning the stage, when you go stand center stage on a Broadway house with 1,500 people staring at you, it is not something a sane person would want to do. I mean, you have to, you're going there for something, you know, whether it's to heal yourself or heal some desire or make friends, you feel like you're lost. There's something inside of you that is driving you that oftentimes starts from something unhealthy. Like it, it's not a desire to do good to the universe. <laughs> like to, I really want to tell stories. You arrive there once you learn how to do it and you start to see the value of telling stories and but I think for a lot of us, it's a fear of insecurity. It's a fear of not being loved, a fear of not being liked, a fear of um, not being heard, mm -hmm. um, to being ignored. And so being the child of young people who are probably immersed in their life 
as parents, they're not really immersed in their parenting life. I always make the joke, oftentimes, I feel like when I was a kid, you know, the house was about the parents. And when I'm a parent, the house is about the kids. Like, I mean, it's it's like somehow I got screwed both ways. <laughs> I feel like I, I, like I wish it was like in my house when I was a kid, nobody cared what yeah. we thought, what we did. And now, like as a parent, I've got to care. Like, I feel like every time I, I missed, I was in the wrong generation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you always have this kind of you know, zoomed out perspective on life. And I guess it makes me wonder and think about, you know, when you had your own kids, I know having kids kind of causes people to zoom out even more on life and, and what that might have been like for you. And I remember I read a little bit that, you know, Malapart seemed to maybe start to end a little bit around when you guys had kids and if, and what that was all about. Well, you were the youngest of all our group of friends to, to get married and have kids. Yeah. And I do think there's what a lot of people start a theater company for is a sense of community and tribe. family, yeah. the tribe. And, and we definitely had that. The friends that we made then are they're just deep to me they're people i they're connected to me somehow their success is my success their hurts are my hurts i feel really connected to that group of people and so it is a family of sorts but then when you start to have your own family it happened you know steve zahn and i both had kids around the same time right you know and Steve immediately got caught up in his own. Being a parent, it's just, it just usurps you. There's very little time for other things besides trying to be a decent parent and do your work. Like, if you want to keep both those things going, let alone the energy a marriage needs, yeah. you, you, you know. So it kind of, I remember Gary Sinise, who who started um, Steppenwolf, you know, was one of the founding members of that, him saying to us when Malapart was really going well, I was really proud of it. He said, it'll never last. And I said, why? He goes, because you guys have other options. Hmm. He said, for us, Steppenwolf dissolving meant we weren't going to get to act anymore. So we fundraised and we did the extra benefit. And I played the smaller part in that stupid play that Malkovich got to be the lead of that he wanted to do. Because if I didn't, it meant I was quitting acting. And he's thinking, you guys don't have that. You guys have professional careers. You can go do a TV show. This person can do this. This person's going to... And I was really heartbroken when he said that because I didn't want it to be true because running a theater company and being a part of a theater company, and it, it felt so good. It felt very alive, and it felt like a... Whenever the arts intersects with making money, when you go to a job and you're acting for a living, and you know about 80% of the people are there for a paycheck, and like maybe 15%, some there's one writer there that really loves it, and there's one actor who's got a really great part, and he's kind of really into it. But most everybody there is to pay their bills. That is so different than watching Steve Zahn pack his lunch and meet you at a basement up in the Lower East Side, down at the Lower East Side, and running through a play where no one's getting paid, and everybody's got, and everybody's just dying to communicate it's a, just a different buzz and and when that's successful when that real true buzz of whether it was you know women of Wallace, we did another one of jonathan um jonathan's plays uh sons and fathers sons and father and we're doing this play josh and i are playing brothers um it's it was so good i just felt so proud of it and we're selling out our own theater company this thing we we created we helped load the lumber in we threw the party that raised the money that got us the you know the curtains on the back wall and and nobody can get in because everybody wants to be there and like that is a feeling that is it's just reasons to live you know and it's different than being on a hit tv show you know yeah yeah uh, anyway you want to talk about Blaze? There's something that most people don't know. Ben Dickey knows this. We, I, had, I came to Josh with this idea that I want to do a movie about musicians and I want to do a movie about creativity, but I want to cast real musicians as the musicians, and I need help getting them their performances to where we want. And the person that I've talked about acting most with in my life is Josh Hamilton. Josh and I have shared a ton of dressing rooms over a long period of time. I mean, it's like I even forget how many places we've I know. Done I was together. thinking, when thinking about this interview, I, was, I, I had the realization that it's quite possible that aside from my immediate family, I've spent more time with anyone else in my life with, with, with you. It's, yeah. and, and we spend time really easily together, and 
I don't know why. So we just we we shared a dressing room for like nine months on Coast of Utopia. We shared a dressing room for a year on the Bridge Project. Uh, you know, we've done so Hurley Burley. Hurley Burley. All right. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. and we ran Hurley Burley forever, and we've. And I've, you know, and Josh would be reading some book about acting, and I'd say, why did you underline that passage? And he would, and, and then he, when he'd finish it, give me, and I'd read all the things he underlined, and I'd be reading some interview with Neil Young, and I'd hand it, you got to see this. And, and we've been, we've been passing things back and forth for a long time. And I came to Josh and I said, once before I die, I want to make a gonzo indie movie. I wanted that Cassavetes experience, and I want to go and make a crazy movie with nobody breathing down our neck, and I want your help to teach these guys how to act. And so... They didn't need any help. <laughs> but we created an environment, and you were really... when I really believe this. When you're good at what you do, 90% of it is creating the right environment. It's like I saw, speaking of Hurley Burley, like... Kenavali, Bobby Kenavali passing by the other day on a bike. And he said, yo, bro, yo, bro. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, there's this actor, this young kid actor called me up. He said, he said, he said, he, he, he has to cry for a scene. What, 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 what was I supposed to say? And I was like, I was like, well, he, he's thinking wrong already. He goes, oh, good. That's what I said. <laughs> and, 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 and I loved it because there is a community of actors and it's, it's getting your alignment right. Getting been thinking right about acting, it, it, there's a wrong way to think and there's a right way, and it's a little mysterious. But when you're thinking the right way, things kind of go up all by themselves. And we created an environment. You and Alia was very good at this too. Alia Shawcat was in the of we created an environment where things flowed and they were very well. I think Charlie Sexton, uh, who played Towns Van Zandt, and Ben Dickey, who played Blaze Foley, they felt really supported. And they, in turn, this is the you know beginner's mind thing, they came at it. It was a spiritual event for Charlie and Ben. They wanted to express themselves artistically in a way they haven't. And we, and so the first person I cast was Josh to help me create a world. I had this character who was around all the time, and I knew I needed help creating the right way to think about acting. Blaze, to me, is the same thing as, as Malapart. It's about the interconnectivity of, it's not about what, you know, I, Josh says right in the opening mo moments, oh yeah, he was shot and killed. And we tell you exactly what's gonna happen at the opening frames. And then it's about how it happens. Yeah. Yeah, and there's something about that movie also that does it does tie back to the origins of, of you know that kind of like, hey let's put on a show, and because I love the circumstances that Blaze came to be in was where you were you were uh, gearing up to make another film, mm -hmm. uh, you you had the money together you were starting to, like you know do a little pre production and then it fell apart for various reasons right. and all of a sudden you were like oh I have three months free. And, uh, you know, most people would be like, oh, great, I have three months free. I can, you know, sort of, you know, kick back, maybe, you know, get, read those books I've been meaning to read and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, and you were like, three months free, I, let's make a movie. And, you know, within the space of like a couple weeks, you wrote a treatment, you know, called up a bunch of friends who were like, <laughs> oh, I know this guy down in, you know, Louisiana who has this land we can shoot on. And, you know, and, and it all sort of came together uh, in the space of like a month or two. Yeah, it was a kind of look ma, no hands moment it, it was in that but I do believe this. It, it's weird. It happened with Malapart. It happened with Blaze. Sometimes stars align. It, this, the universe wills yeah. it. It, it, it. I don't know why. Everything happens so easy. Like, dude, it, it, when you say it like that, it's like, oh, wow, he threw it together. Well, some reason it was supposed to happen because, yeah, I know the guy in Louisiana. Well, I called him up. He was available. He's the one guy who's actually saw Ben Dickey play. He was like, that guy, that guy's a genius. Right. No other producer in Hollywood has ever seen Ben Dickey play. Like, y y you know, and so and his land was really right for the story. Sybil Rosen, I'd stumbled on the book and she like really believed in me and gave us the things. So, and then I call up Alia Shawcat and I'm like, God, because we need a we need a great couple. Right. And she was what, like, I love Blaze Foley. And I, there's not another 20-year-old kid who, who knows who Blaze like, and, and then um, all of a sudden, Charlie Sexton is helping us record Blaze's music. It just was meant to be. Yeah. It was one of those strange things where you go like, wow. It was the most fun I've ever had making a movie. And I, I remember when, when Linkletter was on set one day, he, he, he was there for a couple of days, <laughs> yeah. and he looked around, and he was like, you know, Ethan, it's interesting. You don't really so much direct the movie as host it. <laughs> <laughs> Linkletter has a wonderful ability 
as uh, somebody, I feel like half of my life is dealing with my nervous system. Like when I get excited about something, not getting too excited, not panicking, not like just navigating my nervous system is, and I can never remember on Rick's movies when we started. Like, the, you know, with most things, that first, oh, that's what, I never remember what to be nervous about. Right. Because he puts so much pressure on rehearsal, but it is just rehearsal. But that's where he puts all, what, are you ready for rehearsal? Are you ready? Like, yeah, it's going to be fine, Rick. Like, why are you so tense about rehearsal? Is, is she going to be there for rehearsal? Is, did, did, did we call them and do they have the thing? You're like, yeah, dude, it's going to be like, but so what happens by the time you're rolling? I, I don't even remember. Like, and that's normally where I get choked yeah, up. Sure. You, you know, yeah. it's really, it's very interesting. Well, I love how much empathy is in both acting and directing and, you know, this feeling of hosting a party and all this. And it just made me re- like wonder what you guys have learned from each other through your working relationship that may have enriched your friendship and and what you learned working in different dynamics because I know you've worked as actors alongside each other often but maybe not so as so often as an actor director well actually the first thing you ever directed was start uh, you uh, yeah is a, a short I mean, film in the Chelsea hotel yeah it was it, it's kind of amazing to me when I really start thinking about how much we've worked together uh I love Josh's acting and um I the first, I mean, you're in the first movie I ever directed. You're in the first play I ever directed, Wild Dogs. Um, that was an incredible, we did this crazy nutsy thing. Acting together in Hurley Burley, I have to admit, is still one of the high watermarks of my life. Definitely. Um, it, it, I, we had moments on stage. It's kind of like, you know, it, I can only liken it to, you know, when you see my son's practicing guitar, he loves guitar, and he hears stories about the night Hendrix ripped that solo. It was the first time I felt like we were like, oh, we're kind of having these moments of grace on stage that I read about, like the way William Hurt described when, you know, the first night they did the Lamford Wilson play or blah, blah. And I know it was a revival and all that, but there was something right about the way that we all knew each other and the way, I think because our friendship is so deep and those characters' relationship was so deep and we can take the piss out of each other and just, and I also think this, we know, in, it's not an intellectual thing that I could say what they are, but I think Josh intuits my weak spots, blind spots, things I might be off rhythm about. And I intuit his. It's, it's just, and we help each other present our strongest self by knowing each other so well, like I, I don't. Wow, I never thought of that. That's interesting. I just, I just yeah. think, I think that's what good bandmates do. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, you know what? He never likes to play the right rhythm here, <laughs> so I'm gonna hit this really hard. Or he always overdoes that, right. so I'll go under here, mm-hmm. so the audience can have a freaking break. And then you know, the other highlight for me was Sam Shepard walking into rehearsal of Lie of the Mind, we had one of the most, we would have these, but this is, I want to tell you about Josh for a second. I want to kind of, <laughs> well, this is my, my, <laughs> well, should we set this up? Is that, yeah, so, yeah. so Ethan directed a, a, a revival of Lie of the Mind for the, for the new group. And and you, you knew Sam a little bit. You'd worked mm-hmm. with him before. And before we started rehearsal, you were like, hey, Sam, listen, you know, if you if you want to come by, if you want to, you know, any, you're welcome. Just so you know, you're welcome to come in. And Sam was like, no, no, man, this is your thing. I don't, I don't follow my plays around like a jealous lover. You know? Right, yeah. Okay. I don't want to get. I don't want to get in the way. This is your thing now. You know, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> about a week or two in, all of a sudden we get this. Uh, the stage manager's like, "Um, Sam Shepard's on the way up in the elevator." We're all like, "Oh, okay." We had no idea he was in New York. <laughs> he hadn't returned my calls in months, and all of a sudden he's on the elevator coming up. And we think like, "Oh, he's gonna come by for one day. Just make sure we're not like you know butchering his play." And he starts showing up every day, every day, and some of those moments where we got to talk about. Listening to Sam talk to us about his relationship to Greek theater and talking about Joe Chaikin and the early days of the avant-garde theater in New York and listening and, like, going, wow. Because that production of Lie of Mind was really an extension of Malapart. That was all of it. That was the same spirit energy, same spirit animal that work. It was a lot of the same people. And and so the fact that we'd somehow built this thing that had gravitationally pulled one of our heroes to the rehearsal room 
did that felt like a peculiar high to me. Yeah, and it was fascinating to watch you navigate that because yes, he was so very much one of our heroes, and 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 you know you especially. And he would start. He started sitting there, and and he'd start to have his. He couldn't help himself. He said, you couldn't know, help because he directed the original production, and he'd start to say, you know, Nathan's <laughs> take on the play. You know, Sam, Sam, uh, uh, especially as he's gotten older, I think he was really. He's always had more of a stylized. You know, mm-hmm. the poetry of it. And Ethan was going for a more naturalistic production. And uh, Sam would be like, um, you know, that, that scene where she shouldn't just sort of talk to him. She should sort of like look out. There should be a spotlight on her face. And yeah, it should be like delivered up to the ideas. stars. And- well, the, the, let me tell you, because this, yeah. this is one of the worst, worst, best, interesting, whatever moments in my life. I gave a long speech. You have to picture this. Is it of well, some of the people I admire most, like you got Laurie Metcalf is there, Alessandro mm. Nivola, Josh Hamilton. These are actors. These are my like people that I love. Keith Carradine, Frank Whaley, um, Marin. I mean, just it's just these amazing. Oh yeah, and and Kathy. Yeah. And and we had these great minds of the theater that I respect and I've been working with. And Sam's in there, and he's talking and saying a lot of weird poetic things that are interesting. But I basically tell everybody, okay. What's really essential here is that we not play the poetry. I want old school Uta Hagen. We are going into this. I want what's in your pockets. What do you want? I need you to talk to her, even though she's not listening. You know, I gave a big thing about, I need you to imagine that this is really happening. I don't want to, nobody's in a play. We're not singing a song. We are alive on stage. Your name is X. Your name is Y. This is who you are. You're really brain damaged. You're really in love with her. You really want that blanket. It's not a poem, right? And Sam goes, yeah, except sometimes, totally. I mean, I hear you. But really, you're in your own bubble, and it is kind of about the language. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he just... Totally contradicted everything I said. And, and, and to and, watch you sitting next to you, like one of your all-time life heroes yeah. and sort of trying to like figure out how to stay true to your own vision and like, you know, deal with like your respect and your your admiration for him and, and as a man, as an artist. Uh, it was and not fascinating. Give in. Not to give in. It was incredible to it watch. Because I the funny thing is, I totally respected him and I know that there's value in what he's saying, but he already directed the show. That was the way he directed it. It was four hours long. I have an idea that I'm going to not cut anything, and I'm going to play, and I'm not going to build the set the way he wants, and I'm going to have all the actors on stage all the time, and this it's going to fly. And I'm going to get this thing to like 310, and I'm not going to cut a word, and I'm going to do it by engaging in reality and not playing the poetry, and I think... The problem with great writers directing their own material is they want to make sure you hear this line and make sure you hear this line. And they're not trusting that that's Laurie Metcalf. You're going to hear the important lines. Don't worry. Don't worry. Like, that's done. Yeah. You, you know, and and so I think a good, you know, um, Linkletter talks about this too, the, 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 the myth of the auteur, the myth that the writer-director, he says, if you look at the top, all the lists of the top 100, 500 films of all time, 80% of them are, col- are collaborations. 90%. The, the Charlie Chaplins, the Quentin Tarantinos, they are actually the anomaly in that most great things come out of collaboration. You know, even the Godfathers, you know, Mario Puzo and 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 um and Francis Ford Coppola, the great stuff takes flight because of people working together. And when people work together well, we become greater than the sum of our parts. And when one person's vision is articulated, generally th- that is a little bit smaller than it could have been. You, you know, than a you know, even, you know, e- e- even Quentin, when Quentin collaborates with his actors in the most way. It's like when you see Sam Jackson in Pulp Fiction, it's a great actor intersecting with a great writer. And it's like, watch the sparks fly. Because, you know, that is cinema. It's happening alive on on, in those frames, in the Mercury. That's a collaboration. The camera loves that. And this idea that the genius artist is at work and all the disciples are there making the movie is kind of phony. I mean, I'm sure it happens sometimes, but you better be a genius. You better be Charlie Chaplin or Orson Welles, you know. Most people aren't. Uh... I don't know. Do you want to talk a little bit about writing? Because I mean, one of the things that you know, you're, you, you, I feel like you're, you're someone who've always, who's always sort of figured out 
what they think by hearing what they say, by sort of talking, you know? And, and I've always been sort of, it's always been hard for me to even imagine picture because writing is, you know, the most solitary thing you can do. And it's picture me doing it's it. It's always been hard for me to, yeah. Cause I mean, you're some, you know, some funny. people sort of like, you know, yeah. think about what they think. And then, and yeah. you, you just, you, you, you figure out what you think and feel by the act of just talking. Um, I have a weird restless streak. Restless. That's true. Yeah. I, I, I just, and I get really antsy and agitated with myself and difficult to be around if I, if I'm not, if I didn't like, Engage. Engage in some way. Yeah. And if I can't get a job acting, if I'm not like sitting on set with somebody doing, learning, memorizing lines, my brain starts to turn in on itself. And I think I've often come, like, when I think about the act of like writing Ash Wednesday or writing uh, anything that I've written, it's kind of as an actor, it's like a controlled improv. It's like I start hearing a voice and a voice I kind of want to play and I kind of riff on that voice. And it started, my relationship to star, to writing really started out of the fear of how mercurial the actor's life is. Mm. I mean, really from explorers on, I mean, I, I, it, I always loved acting, but it seems like the kind of thing that could be taken away from you. Like if you don't get a job, you know, one great thing about the age that we're at now is you can teach, and that's very exciting. The, the teaching and directing and producing, and there are ways to be engaged that are different than when I was younger. But when I was younger, it was like, okay, they're going to take this away from me. And so I better write something so I can be engaged in acting in a different way. And I mean, I've pretty much all of, I think of Ash Wednesday because it had the two voices. It's a, it's a book I wrote. How to State, I kind of feel like was a warm up, like the classic thing writers do, which is you just kind of write about your life mm. to teach yourself how to write. And then I've had such great fun later, whether or not it was, I worked on this graphic novel, yeah. and I got to use what I'd learned about writing, imagining the story of the Apache War. So you're like, okay, what would Geronimo say? What would um, some, you know, General Howard, some whitey on his way, what would he be thinking about? How would I, And then, I, like an actor, I think, how would I play this scene? I'll tell you how I'd play it. I think he should walk in praying. You know, and I start, like, and I really just start improvising and seeing it like a drama, and then I want to remember it, so I write it down. And... Um, and that's kind of how it always goes with me. Huh. And it starts in some weird, or I'll have an experience. Something happens, and sometimes it'll happen on stage, uh -huh. and you'll think, oh, this is like a scene from a Chekhov thing, and I want to write it down. Sometimes I think, oh, this would go great in the Before trilogies. Like, this is such a Jesse moment. Mm -hmm. Or I've had those things. Or, you know, for 10 years, 12 years, we were working on Boyhood, and I would call, like... I had this amazing moment with Maya about the Beatles' Black Album where she was hurting over the divorce and really hurting over it. And I made her this mixtape of all the Beatles' best work after they broke up. You mm -hmm. know, John, Paul, George, and Ringo post-breakup till John died. Yeah. Right? That, that decade, 70 to 80. And it was kind of, I was trying to say that they're actually better because they're different. Like, when you hear Paul McCartney's music on a mixtape next to John Lennon's solo music, you start, it starts to sound like the Beatles. Like, you realize, like, oh, the value of the Beatles is their differences. Yeah. And just because John and Paul broke up doesn't mean the music they created wasn't great. And so I was saying to Maya, just because your mom and I weren't able to have the marriage we wanted to doesn't mean the music we created, you, isn't beautiful, essential, and meant to be, right? And and I said, you know, and I was telling this story to Rick, and Rick's like, that's got to go on boyhood. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, and we're going to do, like, I like this. Yeah. And so over the years, that's kind of how I write, is I stumble on something that feels like, okay, this is a, a meaning greater than this moment it's happening in, whether it's positive or negative. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. Should we call it a day? Let's call it a day. Yeah. You know, one, the last one is a quick one. So, so well, the one question we, we, we ask on these uh, podcasts is, what's your favorite body of water? Uh, maybe it's just because I told that story about Maya and uh, my oldest daughter. If I, the, I don't know why. The thing that jumps to mind is when I was falling in love with Maya's mother, uh, 
there's a creek behind her house. They, she grew up in Woodstock yeah. in the Adirondacks. They're so beautiful. And she would take me on these hikes, and there was a creek that hits a pool. And there's something about it whenever my son or daughter tell me they're going up to Woodstock. I always think, I hope they pass by that creek and put their feet in there, take a swim in there. It's It actually has a little waterfall. Uh-huh. like where the, You know, it's one of those weird moments where the rocks quit, and it just has, it's a little six-foot, a waterfall makes it sound grand, but it's so falling water, and it makes that huge rush of noise. And when you put your head under natural water falling in the attic, it's cold. You know, it's not, it ain't, Hawaii, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's Woodstock, New York, so you feel like a bear, yeah. you know, and if I had to say, that's the one that popped to my mind. Nice. Yeah, thanks yeah. for asking. All right, man, well, thanks for coming in. That was really fun. Yeah, thank you both. That was really great. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. We'd also like to thank the American Masters interns for their contributions to this episode, Christina Darko and Giovanna Drummond. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks.